Good afternoon. Welcome. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. I'm Brad Wilson, Executive Director of the James Madison Program in American Institutions and Ideals here at Princeton University. Today we welcome Max Boot to Princeton. Uh, we had originally scheduled Max to be here last year, but uh, we, we, uh, I, I, it must have been a snowstorm that kept Max away, so we're happy that we were able to get him this year. Uh, Max Boot is the Jean J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and one of America's leading military historians and foreign policy analysts. He has advised military commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan, and his books have been assigned reading by the military services. He's lectured on behalf of the US State Department and at many military institutions, including the Army, Navy, and Air War Colleges, the Australian Defense College, the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare School, and West Point. He was a senior foreign policy advisor to the McCain campaign back in 2007 and 2008, and a defense policy advisor to the Romney campaign in 2011-2012. He's the author of two widely acclaimed books, The Savage Wars of Peace, Small Wars, and the Rise of American Power, and War Made New, Technology, Warfare, and the Course of History, 1500 to Today. His newest book uh, is Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. It was released by W.W. W. Norton in January of this year. Uh, he's a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard and the LA Times, a blogger for commentary, and a regular contributor to the Wall Street uh, Journal, where he was the op-ed <coughs> editor uh, uh, until 2002, when he joined the council on foreign relations. Uh, he's also a regular contributor to the New York Times and many other publications. In 2007, he won the Eric Brindell Award for Excellence in Opinion Journalism, given annually to a writer who exhibits, quote, love of country and its democratic institutions, end quote, and, quote, bears witness to the evils of totalitarianism, end quote. Mr. Boot holds a bachelor's uh, degree in history with high honors from the University of California at Berkeley and a master's degree in history from Yale University. He was born in Russia. He grew up in Los Angeles and now lives with his family in the New York area. So please join me in welcoming Max Boot. Thank you very much, Brad, for that kind welcome. It's truly a pleasure to be here in these august halls of learning, and especially at a program hosted by the Madison uh, Institute. I really commend what, what Brad and Robbie George have been able to accomplish with this institute, because this is an often overlooked arm, art form, the art of intellectual entrepreneurship. You're not usually rewarded with billions of dollars and mansions of staggering size, but you can nevertheless have as outsize an impact on the world of ideas as the likes of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and others have had on the world of personal technology. And I think the, the impact that the Madison program has been having is a, is a very positive one. And thank you all for turning out here today. I'm delighted to see an overflow house, which reminds me of Winston Churchill's wisdom in rebuilding the House of Commons when it was 
uh, shattered during the, the German Blitz in London, and he made sure to rebuild it so that it was too small to hold all the members because he wanted to make sure that there would be drama of people crowding into an overly small space. And so I commend uh, the folks putting the program together for having a similar wisdom about this, this space here today. And thank you all for assembling to give me a chance to talk about what I've been working on for the last six years, which is this book whose cover appears before you and which is actually available to you for the very, very low price today only of about $14 and something cents on Amazon, or there's the, uh, the cards back there. So if you forgive an author a shameless book plug, that's mine. But what I'm going to do here today is I'm not going to really plug the book. I'm really going to talk about what I wrote about in the book. And what I did in the book was audacious and quite possibly foolhardy, because I tried to encompass 5,000 years of guerrilla warfare history between two hardcovers, or now between two paper covers. That was not easy to do. But what I'm going to do here today, before your very eyes, is even more audacious and possibly even more foolhardy, because I'm going to encompass those same 5,000 years into the next 25 minutes or so. So for those of you who are much better at math than I am, that works out to about 200 years per minute. So fasten your seatbelts. I assume all of your seats do have seatbelts, right? We are going for a rapid historical journey. Now the question I get, or I got asked most often during the six years that I was working on the slim little volume, and by slim little volume, I mean it's under 1,000 pages, of course. During the six years that I was working on it, the question I was asked most often is, aside from, don't you have anything better to do with your time? The other question I was asked most often is, what was the first guerrilla war? And that turns out to be a question that is surprisingly difficult to answer, because in fact, guerrilla warfare is as old as mankind. Tribal warfare, which has been going on since mankind has been on this earth, is essentially guerrilla warfare because tribes don't batter out standing face to face and fighting in the approved style of the Greek hoplites and countless Western armies ever since. They prefer to use the elements of stealth and surprise to stage raids into the territory of neighboring tribes to steal the goods of the neighboring tribe, perhaps kill some warriors, shoot some fire arrows and make their escape before the mass of the other tribe can make its appearance. Those are the defining characteristics both of ancient tribal warfare and of modern guerrilla warfare. By contrast, conventional warfare is a relatively recent invention because by definition, you cannot have conventional warfare unless you have states to support it because somebody has to provide the taxation, the bureaucracy, the cool uniforms, everything else that makes up a standing army. And there were no states prior to about 3000 BC. It's only in the last 5,000 years or so that the states have grown up, beginning, of course, in ancient Mesopotamia. But even once you had the rise of the first city states, most of their enemies were not the conventional armies of other city states. Most of their warfare was conducted against nomadic raiders without and rebels within. In other words, against guerrillas. 
Now, what that suggests to me is that the way we think about this entire topic is all screwed up. Because we talk about conventional warfare, regular warfare, as if it's somehow the norm. And we look almost disdainfully upon unconventional warfare, irregular warfare, as if there is something wrong with it. Well, that is the exact opposite of reality. Because in fact, guerrilla warfare is the norm. It's conventional warfare, which is very much the exception. It's always been relatively rare, and it's getting much rarer all the time. There is not a single, there's not a single conventional war going on anywhere in the world right now. In fact, since this is such a learned audience, and I can see the weight of degrees almost keeping this, the floor of this room sagging here, let me ask you a trivia question. What was the last conventional war that the world has seen? The last conventional war in the world. Anybody? Pitting two nation-state armies against each other. Who said Russia and Georgia? An A-plus to that gentleman. Not an easy answer to get, because there really are not a lot of conventional wars anymore. It's a trivia question. And that was obviously a very inconsequential war that lasted just a few weeks. By contrast, of course, warfare in general has hardly disappeared. Fighting is going on, as we know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, horrifically in Syria, and many other places around the world. These are not conventional nation-state wars. These are what we call, for want of a better term, irregular wars. And there's a tendency to think that this is somehow this weird anomaly as a result of the end of the Cold War, as a result of 9-11. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. This is the way it's always been and always will be. It's not just the US Armed Forces, whose valor we celebrate today, who have had to spend the last decade or so fighting primarily against insurgent enemies in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. This has been the lot of every great military power throughout history, including the greatest force in antiquity, the Roman legions, pretty formidable, even when not led by Russell Crowe. <laughs> now, we know that despite Russell Crowe's inspired leadership, Rome ultimately did fall. And what, to the, what led to the collapse of the Roman Empire? Well, Rome, much like the modern United States, was a superpower without peer. It was not surrounded by these great nation-state rivals. It was, however, surrounded by enemies, those whom the Romans wonderfully called barbarians. And who were the barbarians? They were not legions. They were not conventional military forces like those that the Romans deployed. They were irregulars. Many of them, in fact, fought in classic guerrilla fashion. The collapse of the Roman Empire was in fact precipitated by the entry into Western Europe of the Huns around 370 AD, led of course by their fearsome and famous chief Attila. I might add, by the way, nobody actually knows what Attila looked like. This is just a fanciful 19th century German drawing. But we do know a little bit about the way the Huns fought, and I would quote to you a description, very interesting and very evocative, from a fourth century Roman historian. He wrote of the Huns, they are very quick in their operations, of exceeding speed and fond of surprising their enemies. They suddenly disperse and reunite and again, after having inflicted vast loss upon the enemy, scatter themselves over the whole plain in irregular formations, always 
avoiding a fort or an entrenchment. Now, I would suggest to you that's a pretty good description of guerrilla warfare, whether they're practiced in the fourth century by the Huns or practiced today by so many insurgent groups around the world. Now, having stressed the continuity in guerrilla warfare, I don't want to leave you with an erroneous impression. I don't mean to suggest that absolutely nothing has changed over thousands of years. There have been some significant changes. And to my mind, the biggest of all are what I call the three Ps, politics, propaganda, and public opinion. And I'm really lucky and glad I could remember those three. I don't want to have a Rick Perry moment up here. Politics, propaganda, and public opinion. Those are monumental factors in irregular warfare today. They were not such a big factor. They were not such big factors in the kind of warfare waged by the Huns thousands of years ago. The conflict, which I think really symbolizes the dividing line between ancient and modern types of warfare, is our very own war of independence, which we should remember was fought not just with muskets and broadswords, but also with propaganda broadsides, like Thomas Paine's famous pamphlet, Common Sense. Now, when we tend to think about the battles of the American Revolution, we tend to think about battles like Lexington and Concord, where the redcoats, the British regulars, were very chagrined to discover these Yankee rascals slithering on their bellies and sniping at them from behind trees and rocks and doing other things that were not quite cricket. And that's true. That was a significant part of the American Revolution. But there's a little bit more to the story than that. And I would suggest to you, in fact, the mental map that most of us have about how the revolution turned out is wrong, or at least if not wrong, incomplete. Now, the way I remember the American Revolution being taught in school, back in the days when the American Revolution was still taught in school, <laughs> I remember reading a lot about conventional battles, like the Battle of Saratoga, or of course, the battle fought just a few miles from here on January 3rd of 1777. A chronicle which typically culminates in the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, when, as we know, Lord Cornwallis surrendered something like 7,000 regulars to General George Washington. And that was the end of the, of the great struggle for independence. Or so we are led to believe. We should think twice, I think, because, in fact, even after the defeat at Yorktown, the British Empire still had tens of thousands of regulars in North America. They had tens of thousands more throughout the empire, and of course, tens of thousands more mercenaries they could have hired from the German states. I can assure you, if our founding fathers had been fighting not the British Empire, but the Roman Empire, the story would not have had a happy ending, because the Romans did not generally go away after a defeat or two. Almost certainly, they would have come back, and Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, I hate to say too, all of the Founding Fathers probably would have been crucified, quite literally. Now, the reason that did not happen in the present instance is because of a factor the Romans did not have to worry about. Two simple little words, public opinion. And I would argue to you that the fate of the American Revolution was ultimately decided not on a battlefield in North America, but in London, in the House of Commons where on February 28 of 1782, a momentous vote was held. And this was the true turning point, the true decisive point of the American Revolution. When the House voted by a very narrow division, 
234 to 215, that close to discontinue offensive operations in North America. Now this was a stinging blow to Lord North and his hardline Tory ministry. It in fact led to the downfall of Lord North and the rise of Lord Rockingham and his Whigs who were committed to a policy of conciliation with their American brethren. Now it's hard to exaggerate how incredibly important this development was. This was not something that happened in centuries past. A great power, the superpower of its day, deciding to stop fighting, not because it had lost the physical capacity to continue making war, but because its own public had turned against the conflict. That is something which, as I say, did not happen in centuries past, but it has happened in the centuries since. In fact, it has been a virtual template that America's enemies have followed in places like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And it was a huge achievement for the revolutionary generation that they were able to figure out how to harness this potent weapon to bring down a corner of the British Empire. And of course, it was no accident that it happened because this was exactly why documents like the Declaration of Independence or Thomas Paine's pamphlets, that's why they were written, to engage in the battle for public opinion. So this, I, I would argue, the American Revolution was really a turning point in showing how public opinion could turn the balance in favor of otherwise overmatched guerrilla forces. And there is a lesson here which has been taken to heart by generations of irregulars, including the greatest 20th century theorist of insurgent warfare, Mao Zedong. Now in 1938, after the Long March, Mao holed up in a cave in northern China to write his masterpiece on protracted war, working so intently over the course of a week that he didn't notice a candle burning a hole in his shoe. And the document he produced, of course, collected in one of his little red books, which I trust all of you have on your nightstand table and, and consult every night, <laughs> is a true classic of the genre of insurgent literature. Now Mao is famous for saying that the people are like water and the army is like fish. He stressed the need to keep the closest possible relations with the common people. He told his troops, his guerrillas, be courteous and polite, pay for all articles, establish latrines a safe distance from people's houses, and so forth and so on. Now why was Mao issuing these directions? Was it because he was this soft-hearted humanitarian who lay awake at night worrying about the fate of the common people? No. I would argue that Mao was about as much of a humanitarian as Attila the Hun. But Mao was very canny, and he understood you could no longer wage guerrilla warfare in the 20th century the way that you had in the 4th century. That in the modern era, nomadic roving bands of raiders could not achieve their objective. In the modern era, to be successful, an insurgent group has to be able to establish control of so-called liberated territory, where it can tax the peasantry, where it can enlist the peasantry, where it can spread its propaganda, do all the other quasi-governmental things you need to do in order to raise a, a fighting force potent enough to overthrow an entrenched government. And to do all of that, that force has to stay on the right side of the people. That's something that Mao understood. So that's why he issued his instructions to his, to his men. Not because he was worried about the fate of the common people, but because he was worried about the success of his revolution. Now, public opinion is even more important when it comes to another branch of irregular warfare, terrorism. 
Now, the anarchists of the 19th century, some of the very first modern terrorists, define terrorism as propaganda by the deed. And that's a description which still applies. Because terrorists are very, very weak militarily. I mean, I, I believe there's actually kind of a ladder of military force, with terrorists at the bottom, guerrillas on the next rung, conventional forces next, and above them, of course, ultimately, weapons of mass destruction. But terrorists are at the bottom. They tend to operate in groups of a few dozen or a few hundred. They have very little capacity for attacking conventional military forces. They certainly cannot hope to overthrow any kind of government by military force. The most they can hope to do is to set off a few bombs and thereby to create some headlines, which they hope will achieve the kind of propaganda effect they are seeking to achieve. By the way, that's why there was almost no terrorism in history before the second half of the 19th century. I mean, there are a few antecedents you can, you can look to that I write about in my book. The Sicarii, the dagger men who terrorized first century Judea, or the assassins of the Middle Ages, but there are very, very few. Because in fact, to have terrorists, you have to have a way for them to get their message out. And until the second half of the 19th century, there was no mass media that would allow them to get their message out. But with the rise of printing presses that published cheap penny magazines and newspapers, and later, and of course the telegraph, later radio, television, satellite TV, the internet, all of these media communications have allowed terrorism to blossom, to become a growth industry, taking advantage of their ability to get their message out. That is certainly something that the foremost terrorists of modern times understood very clearly. Osama bin Laden said that the media wars as much as 95% of the whole in the waging of jihad. That's how much importance he ascribed to this particular branch of operations, and probably rightly so. In light of Al-Qaeda's very limited conventional military abilities, they nevertheless have quite an ability to dominate headlines and to make an impression throughout the world. Now, I would argue that the rising power of public opinion helps to account for one of the interesting anomalies that I detected in the course of writing my book. I mean, most of my book is just simply a flat-out historical narrative built around colorful personalities like Garibaldi or T. Lawrence or Ord Wingate or others, Michael Collins and many others who dominated the history of unconventional warfare. But at the end, I make what is for me a very rare foray into the thickets of social science. I compiled a database of all insurgencies since 1775 coded for outcome. And what does that database show? It shows that insurgencies have been getting more successful. Prior to 1945, insurgents were winning about 20% of their completed campaigns. Since 1945, they've been winning around roughly 40% of their completed campaigns. Now, what accounts for that increased rate of effectiveness? Part of it is certainly due to the spread of ever more powerful weaponry, which I will talk about in a minute. But I would argue to you, the largest part of the explanation is the rising power of public opinion. This is the trump card that enables even a puny military force to bring down a great power or even a superpower. And it's not just democracies, by the way, that have to worry about this. So do in the modern world illiberal uh, regimes. I mean, just ask Muammar Gaddafi. No, I'm sorry, you can't ask Gaddafi. He's dead. But why is he dead? He was trying to put down a rebellion with fire and sword in the, in the, in the time-tested and approved tactic of dictators going back since the dawn of time. And yet he failed. Why did he fail? 
because his repression was publicized and it led to the rise of an outside coalition against them, which intervened and which led to his deposal, downfall, and, and death. That's a sign of how much public opinion matters and how much public opinion in the modern world has tilted the battlefield to be much more in favor of guerrillas than was once the case. Now, I don't want to get carried away here, and we do need to keep up some perspective. Just remember the figure I cited even a, even a minute ago about how guerrillas or insurgents, excuse me, we can talk about what those terms mean a little bit later, but insurgents are winning about 40% of their campaigns in the post-1945 era. Well, what's the flip side of that? Obviously, they're still losing 60% of them. And so we should not succumb to this myth of, of the guerrilla fighter as this invincible 10-foot tall superhuman. This was a myth that, that grew up in the wake of World War II thanks to the success of a handful of high-profile insurgents, the likes of Ho Chi Minh or Mao Zedong or Fidel Castro. And their achievements were impressive, but we need to keep a sense of perspective. And for that part of the story, let me cite to you the example of someone whose picture once used to adorn every dorm room wall on the planet. <laughs> and actually probably still adorns every dorm room wall at my alma mater, which is UC Berkeley. <laughs> now, how did Che Guevara become so famous and such an idol to youth and a boon for makers of posters and t-shirts? It wasn't just because he had a cold beret. It had a lot to do with the success that he and Fidel Castro had in the 1950s in overthrowing the Batista regime in Cuba, which at first blush seemed like a pretty remarkable achievement because here was this handful, just a few hundred really, of these bearded rebels in the hills of Cuba overthrowing a regime with 40,000 troops, with artillery, aircraft, tanks, all of the paraphernalia of modern war as supplied by the U.S. of A. Well, the achievement of of Guevara and Castro and their crew becomes a little bit more understandable when you delve a little bit more deeply and you see that by the end of the 1950s, Batista was fundamentally illegitimate. He was unpopular, he was unelected, he was corrupt. He had lost the mainstream of Cuban society. Even the Chamber of Commerce had turned against him. That's a pretty bad sign when the Chamber of Commerce is turning against an established regime. That's why uh, the Castro movement was able to achieve the success that it did. But like many, many generals who have been victorious throughout history, Che Guevara succumbed to a sense of hubris. He imagined he could replicate elsewhere the success that he had had in Cuba. He was to be cruelly disabused of this illusion, first in Congo and then in Bolivia, where he showed up in 1966. And there he is on the bottom right of the screen looking especially hairy. Now, the situation that Che found in Bolivia was very different from the one he'd encountered in Cuba a decade before. Because in Bolivia, the head of state was not this unpopular, unelected autocrat. He was, in fact, a pretty popular elected president who had already instituted land reform, the chief Marxist calling card. By contrast, Che came in with a handful of outsiders, not a single Bolivian among them. They didn't even speak the local Indian languages. In fact, I think it's safe to say that during his time in Bolivia, Che's best friend was his mule, Chico. So it's no great surprise that in relatively short order, he was hunted down and killed by these guys, Bolivian Army Rangers, advised and assisted by U.S. Army Rangers and the CIA. And here, in 1967, was the end of the great Che Guevara, his corpse being poked by his enemies. 
Now, I would submit to you that if even a insurgent as legendary, as fabled as Che Guevara, somebody who literally wrote the book on guerrilla warfare, if even he could be defeated and killed, there is no insurgency so powerful it cannot ultimately be defeated. The question is, how? Well, we're very lucky in this regard that two of the great powers of Europe in the 1950s conducted a controlled experiment in counterinsurgency for our benefit. On the one hand, you had the French in Algeria from 1954 to 1962. On the other hand, you had the British in Malaya from 1948 to 1960. And they fought in very different styles. The French approach in Algeria was really emblematic of the scorched earth, male fist, brute force approach to counterinsurgency. By contrast, the British in Malaya came to be symbolic of what is now known as the population-centric or hearts and minds school of counterinsurgency. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, if you want to know what the French did in Algeria, you don't have to sit here and listen to me, although I'm glad you are sitting here and listening to me. You could just go home, and if you haven't seen it already, rent that wonderful movie, The Battle of Algiers, which I commend to everybody, a wonderful evocation of what happened in the capital city of Algeria in 1957 when the Algerian nationalist movement was setting off bombs that were killing people. The French security forces were helpless to stop this. The police didn't know what to do. And so in desperation, they called in the elite of the French army, the 10th Parachute Division under General Jacques Massou. The Paris marched very quickly into Algiers and took control of the Casbah, the native quarter where the native Muslim population lived. And they began rounding up thousands of young men for interrogation to find out who were the terrorists lurking in their midst. Now, we know what happened in these French interrogation centers in part because of the testimony of this man, Henri Alleg, who was not himself Algerian. He was French, a French Jew, actually. But he was also a communist and ran a Republican newspaper in Algiers, which was crime enough to get him arrested by the paratroopers. Now, we're all familiar, I think, with medieval instruments of torture like the rack or the Iron Maiden. Well, Henri Alleg was to be introduced to a peculiarly modern and fiendish form of torture known as the Zizane. This was just French army slang for what is essentially a little dynamo designed to power field telephones. As you can see, it's got a couple of clips on the right that you can attach to whoever you're interrogating, and it's got a handle you can turn. And the faster you turn that handle, the more electricity comes out. Now, Henri Alleg was to learn what the Zizane could do when the paratroopers took him into an interrogation room, stripped him naked, tied him down to a wooden board with leather straps, and applied the clips to his ear and to his finger. He later wrote, flash, a flash of lightning exploded next to my ear, and I felt my heart racing in my breast. I struggled, screaming. But he was tough, this newspaper editor. He still would not give up the information the paratroopers wanted. So they took a clip off his ear and attached it to his penis. He wrote that his body shook with nervous shocks, getting stronger in intensity. When this still would not elicit the information the paratroopers wanted, they were enraged. They dragged him off the table and they pummeled him with their fists. Then they took him into another room to be introduced to another method of interrogation, what they called the Tuyo, what we know better as waterboarding. 
On Rio Lake Road, I had the impression of drowning. A terrible agony of death itself took possession of me. After this ordeal, he was tossed in a cell, still naked, left to spend the night on a barbed wire mattress and listen to the thuds and screams of other detainees getting similar treatment in other rooms of this facility. Now, we are often told that torture doesn't work. And this would be a comforting thought. But in fact, in the case of Algeria, torture did work, at least short term and tactically. Because using such brutal methods of interrogation, the French actually were able to crack the insurgent network in Algiers. Within a few months, by the end of 1957, no more bombs were going off in Algiers. And so the French could congratulate themselves that they had won their war on terror. Or had they? Well, as it happens, we know with the benefit of hindsight, things did not turn out quite the way that the French army had expected. Because in fact, there was no way to conceal what was happening in this major city not far from the shores of Europe. Newspapers wrote about what was going on. A few people like Henri Alleg came forward to write memoirs of their experiences. And as the French people came to understand how their own security forces were using Gestapo methods to defend their empire, support for the war crumbled. And not just in France, but around the world, where a young senator named John F. Kennedy denounced what the French were doing in Algeria. At the end of the day, by 1962, President Charles de Gaulle had no choice but to grant Algeria its independence. The cost of trying to keep Algeria had become too high, including, one might add, the moral cost. Now, as it happens, on the very opposite end of the world, at almost exactly the same time, a very different approach to counterinsurgency was being taken by this man, Field Marshal Sir Gerald Templer, who should not be confused with this man, the actor David Niven, <laughs> for whom he is a dead ringer. So this man, not this man, but this man took advantage, uh, was sent in the early 1950s to take charge of the British war effort in Malay. I appreciate the laugh, by the way, when I tried this little joke with a uh, room full of midshipmen at the Naval Academy, all I got was blank stares because, of course, they have no idea who David Niven was. So thank goodness, by and large, this is an audience of a certain generation with which I associate myself because, of course, I'm lucky enough to know who David Niven was as well. But anyway, it wasn't David Niven, who, by the way, I would add, I don't want to get, get off on a David Niven tangent, but he, he actually went to Sandhurst as well and served in World War II. So he was actually a British Army man as well, although not as distinguished as as Field Marshal Templer, who, when he arrived in uh, Malaya, found a situation that was rapidly spiraling out of control. The Malayan Races Liberation Army, one of many communist insurgent movements of the time, was blowing up trains. They were attacking rubber plantations, killing Europeans. When uh, General Templer drove from the airport in Kuala Lumpur and government house, he did so in the very same car in which his predecessor, had been assassinated a few months previously. The bullet holes were still in it. That must have been a fun ride. <laughs> it would have been very understandable if under those circumstances, Templer had decided he had no choice but to brutalize the population into acquiescence. But that's not what he decided, because he understood that the key to victory was not in terrorizing the population. It was in controlling the population. And how did he go about controlling the population? Well, he used many methods, one of the most effective of which was the creation of these new villages, 
into which large numbers of Chinese squatters were herded because Templar understood that the key to the insurgent appeal lay among the Chinese community in Malaya, who by and large did not have citizenship, did not have ownership of their land. They were outsiders in Malayan society and therefore were susceptible to the siren song of communism. And so Templar moved large numbers of them into these new villages where they had access to clinics, schools, fields to till, clean water. And oh, by the way, they were also surrounded by fences and armed guards to physically and literally cut them off from the insurgency. Templar did other things as well. He sent aircraft to overfly insurgent-held areas, not to bomb them, but to drop leaflets calling them to surrender. Some of them even had loudspeakers attached and would call out individual insurgents by name, a very spooky and effective tactic. He also discontinued the fruitless jungle bashing in which the British Army had hitherto engaged in Malay, in which the US Army would later engage in <coughs> Vietnam, sending large formations thrashing through the jungle in a hopeless attempt to bring these wily and elusive guerrillas to decisive engagement. Instead, Templar put his emphasis on intelligence, beefing up special branch to generate actionable intelligence on where the insurgents were hiding and then sending picked troops like the SAS to target their lairs and very carefully formulated raids that are really the, the antecedents to what SEAL Team 6 did when they killed Osama bin Laden. He even imported headhunters from Borneo to act as trackers for his men. But at the end of the day, what Templar understood was that the war was not going to be won or lost in the jungle. It was going to be won or lost among the people. He is associated with two very famous sayings. He said, first, the shooting side of the business is only 25% of the trouble and the other 75% lies in getting the people of the country behind us. He also said, the answer lies not in pouring more troops into the jungles, but in the hearts and minds of the people. That's where that phrase caught on, hearts and minds of the people. And it has become so overused since that it has come to mean almost nothing. Many people, including many people in our own armed forces, seem to imagine it means that you shower all sorts of goodies on a population to win their love and affection and gratitude. We tried to do that, by the way, in, in Afghanistan and even more so in Iraq, only to quickly discover that no matter how many billions of dollars we spent on schools and uh, water treatment plants and hospitals and other wonderful things, the people still wouldn't support us if they were gonna get killed for doing so. That's really not what population-centric counterinsurgency is about in the hands of a skilled counterinsurgent like Field Marshal Templar. It's really about controlling the population, which begins with physically securing the population. And we saw how he went about doing that. But he also understood that you could not hold down a rest of population at bayonet point indefinitely. You have to give them some positive reason to support the government forces. So what positive inducement did, did uh, Templar offer in Malaya? He made a deal with the people of Malaya. He said to them, if you support us, the British, in our war against this communist insurgency, we will grant you, the people of Malaya, independence. Now that was a pretty good deal. That gave the Malayans a reason to fight on the British side. I mean, it certainly seems like a no-brainer, and yet the French never figured it out in Algeria. They were trying to make their Algerian allies fight for a continuation of the French Empire. No wonder they lost. By and large, I would argue that population-centric strategies modeled on those 
of Templar and Malayan have had more success than scorched earth, brutal types of counterinsurgencies, which even if they exceed the brutality of the French many times over, can still fail as the Nazis learned in the Balkans or as the Soviets learned in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Now the final point I want to make is to address the so what question. What does any of this matter? Why should we be concerned about the proper way to fight an insurgency? Well, if you listen to a lot of people in Washington, it doesn't matter. The prevailing attitude in Washington these days towards counterinsurgency is been there, done that, that's so yesterday. We're out of Iraq, we're soon getting out of Afghanistan, we're pivoting to the Pacific. The armed forces are very eager, palpably eager to get back to the kind of soldiering they're most comfortable with, conventional force-on-force -force engagements against the mirror image adversary, which I think is a great idea. If only, if only we could get our enemies to cooperate. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we had more adversaries as dim-witted as Saddam Hussein, who would put giant tank armies out there in the desert so we could annihilate them in exactly the style of high technology warfare that the US Armed Forces prefer. But I have some bad news for you here today. I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings and let you know and on a little secret here. Not all of our adversaries are complete imbeciles. Some of them do have the capacity to learn from history. And those who don't, like Saddam Hussein, tend to be dead. The ones who are still alive understand that if you're going to confront a superpower, you're going to have a lot more success using irregular warfare methods than you are confronting us head on in exactly the kind of warfare we prefer to fight. And so, of course, that's exactly what they're doing. It's a good thing that Osama bin Laden is dead, but unfortunately, Al-Qaeda is still very much alive. And in fact, it has spread to lands like Libya, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, and elsewhere, where it was not present before. It is the threat We've, you know, we, we tend to forget about the existence of the threat because, thank goodness, we have not seen another 9-11. But the threat has not gone away as the terrible bombing of the Boston Marathon should remind us. And unfortunately, far worse could be in our future because of one of the disturbing trends of the last 100 years, which is the increase in killing capacity available to the individual. Now, a century ago, when Western armies were campaigning against guerrillas, Think, for example, of our own uh, wars against Indian tribes on the Trans-Mississippi uh, Plains. Their adversaries were generally armed with nothing more than bows and arrows, maybe a few rifles. Today, of course, there is no corner of the world so remote that every young man doesn't have access to an AK-47, a rocket-propelled grenade, explosives, all these relatively low-tech infantry weapons, which have nevertheless taken such a terrible toll among American troops whose service we remember and, and recognize today. Unfortunately, as I say, far worse could be ahead because these are not the most potent weapons available to an insurgent. The ultimate nightmare, of course, is that insurgents could get their hands on weapons of mass destruction, which is why it's such a big deal. What happens in the negotiations with Iran and whether Iran gets to build nuclear weapons? That is truly our number one national security concern because I am very much concerned that at the end of the day, George Clooney may not be around to rescue us. 
And what happens if George Clooney and Nicole Kidman are not there in the nick of time? Well, I will leave you with this one chart from a magazine that I'm sure all of you read. You probably have boxes of it in your attics or uh, basements. This is, of course, the International Journal of Health Geographics, the uh, 2007 issue, if it'll jog your memories. This is a chart taken from a larger study conducted by a team of scientists of what would happen if various sized nuclear devices were set off in various American cities. And this is a chart suggesting what would happen if a 20 kiloton device were set off in, in lower Manhattan. Now, they didn't, they didn't do a study of what would happen in Princeton, but uh, since uh, they didn't study your hometown, I'm sharing the results for my hometown. And as you can see, it's pretty grim. Uh, if you live anywhere south of Yonkers, you're in big trouble. By the way, a 20 kiloton device is not that powerful. It's about the same size as the bomb that leveled Nagasaki in 1945. And yet the estimate is, if this were to occur, you would have more than 1.6 million injured and roughly 700,000 killed. In other words, it would make 9-11 look like a Sunday in the park by comparison. Now, I don't mean to be overly alarmist here. I don't mean to suggest this is going to happen anytime soon. Knock on wood, it's never going to happen. But we have to acknowledge the disturbing possibility that something like that could happen. And in fact, the odds grow as you see the instability in, in a nuclear-armed state like Pakistan, when you see the, the increasing bankruptcy of another nuclear-armed state in North Korea, when you see Iran drawing closer to acquiring its own nuclear weapon. This is certainly not outside the realm of possibility. Rome was brought down by barbarians. Today, we face our own barbarians who are infinitely more powerful and dangerous. I would suggest to you the first line of defense is simply to understand the nature of this type of warfare, to understand the long history of insurgency and counterinsurgency so that we can think more clearly about the future threats that we face and how to respond to them. And that's something, that's a conversation I've tried to spark with this book. And so without further ado, I'd, look, I'd love to have more of a two-way conversation with all of you. Excellent, excellent. Um, we'll open it up for questions, and as is our habit in the Madison program, let me invite any students in the audience to ask the first questions. You're on the spot, students. I assumed everybody um, was a student. I assume, a microphone that, I assume that the average age of the student body was just slowly rising here. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, I'd like to go back to the uh, topic where we were comparing uh, Algeria to uh, British Malaya. And I think an important distinction that I think we need to make is that Algeria was sort of more than a colony to the French at the time. It was almost like what we call, what, how we consider Hawaii or Alaska, and that it's more than just a simple colony. And that the, uh, the independence groups that were fighting in, in Algeria at the time were specifically independence groups and not necessarily communist groups or groups of, of that nature. And I think. Would, it, would a strategy of just allowing the Algerians to be independent have worked for France, and what would have been a solid alternative in that situation? Well, I think you put your finger on why the French did not make the kind of compromises the British made in, uh, in Malaya, because in fact, it was unthinkable to the French that they would let Algeria go, especially since the war started just a few months after Dien Bien Phu, just a few months after they had lost another colony in Indochina. And yes, of course, they regarded Algeria as being a, a, a department of France, not as being an overseas uh, territory. Of course, that wasn't the way the majority of Algerians saw it, and so there was a clash of perceptions. I think the French 
could have salvaged some kind of, of more acceptable political outcome if they had, in fact, made greater concessions early on, uh, giving Algeria real as opposed to nominal autonomy, perhaps even paving the way for negotiated uh, independence early on in some kind of very loose association uh, with France through the French Union, their version of the, of the Commonwealth. And if they had done that, they might have been able to lead to the rise in Algeria of a more pro-Western, more pro-French leadership than the one that actually arose. And of course, they would have, uh, uh, they would have avoided a lot of pain and suffering on both sides, including very heavy casualties among, among French forces. But it was unthinkable for them to do that. They were determined to fight on. And of course, uh, the way that they fought was, was not particularly effective because it was so brutal. Uh, it wasn't just their failure to, to offer a more palatable political outcome to the population. It was even the brutality, as I highlighted before, of the very tactics that they used that led to a backlash against it and made it very hard for them to win over the population. Even though at the time when the revolt broke out in 54, most Algerians were not dead set on independence. Most of them, it was only a small hardcore that was, that was militant at that time. Most Algerians were, were quite open to some kind of compromise with the French. And I think with their obstinacy and their use of overly brutal tactics, the French lost that kind of chance to reach a negotiated settlement that would appeal uh, to the majority of Algerians. Another student question. Uh, just uh, microphones. Oh, it is on, okay. Um, I've heard the example of Malaya given in, in discussions of this kind of an example of a more successful kind of counterinsurgency strategy, but I can't recall hearing really any other than that. Do you have other examples that you would offer of successful counterinsurgency strategies of this kind in modern times, or is sure. it really thin? No, it's not. I mean, Malaya is kind of an iconic example, which is why I cite it, but you could also look at uh, the British in Northern Ireland uh, you can look at the uh, Israeli success against the Second Intifada in the West Bank. You can look at the success in Colombia that uh, President uh, Uribe and his successor have had over the course of the last decade, which has actually been one of the great uh, counterinsurgency success stories of, of, of recent times, which doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, but you know, remember, as recently as 2000 or so, the FARC, the rebel, Marxist rebel movement aligned with the narco-traffickers, which has been in existence since the mid-1960s, as recently as, the as, as 2000, they controlled something like 20% of the population. And it was essentially not safe to travel outside of Bogota. And in the, over the course of the last decade, uh, with a strategy that he called democratic security, uh, President Uribe and his successor, President Santos, have rolled back FARC to the extent that FARC is now very seriously negotiating the terms of their surrender and negotiated into the to the war with with the negotiations making very good progress in Havana. And of course, the the example which will be much more familiar to Americans than what's going on in Colombia is the surge which occurred in Iraq in 2007 and 2008. And that was truly one of the great uh, comeback success stories in the annals of of low intensity conflict. And it was really accomplished because it by a rediscovery of the basic tenets of, of, of population-centric counterinsurgency, which the U.S. Army had completely forgotten, willfully forgotten, in fact, in the wake of Vietnam. And then it was discovered uh, in the early days of, uh, gradually rediscovered in the, as, as the war in Iraq went along in the, in the grim early days, including by somebody who I believe got his uh, doctoral 
degree here at Princeton. In fact, uh, David Petraeus wrote his doctoral dissertation on Vietnam at a time when very few people in the Army were studying that subject. And it really took this intellectual renaissance led by General Petraeus and by his counterpart in the Marine Corps, General Jim Mattis, who together uh, made possible the publication in late 2006 of FM 3-24, the, the field manual on, on counterinsurgency, the first field manual on the subject that the armed forces had produced in decades. And then General Petraeus being appointed uh, to take command of multinational forces Iraq in January of 2007 was able to implement those basic tenets of population-centric coin. Uh, if you want to know more, I would recommend a new book out by General Petraeus's former XO and now professor of military history at Ohio State uh, called The Search, which received a, a very favorable review in the Wall Street Journal from some guy whose name seems to be identical to mine. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good like, description of what happened. Now, the, you know, the, the skeptical argument you can make as well, isn't Iraq a mess today? And it's true it is a mess. But I think that the surge really bought an opportunity for a better outcome because it led to a 90% reduction in violence. I think we squandered that opportunity by uh, not doing more to, to see a, a more legitimate government emerge from the 2010 elections and by not doing more to see that uh, some number of US troops remained in Iraq after 2011. So I think we've made a lot of mistakes in the end game in Iraq, but I don't think that takes away from the success that the surge had, which very few expected, because it, and, and the success that it had was really through the application of, of these very ideas. Would, would uh, the defeat of the Shining Path in Peru fit this category? Yeah, the successful? defeat of the Shining Path. I mean, there's, in fact, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's many, many uh, defeats that you can cite uh, of, of insurgent movements around the world that we tend not to even think about that much, but it's not just, uh, you know, the IRA. There's, oh, there was, you know, various terrorist groups in Western Europe, from the, you know, Bader Meinhof gang to the, uh, to the Basque separatists in, in Spain. There were, at one point, insurgent groups in pretty much every country in Latin America. In El Salvador, there was a notable population-centric campaign in the 1980s waged with U.S. assistance, which was very successful. There are actually a lot of examples. Uh, one can point to because, you know, if you get the book and turn to the back and look at the database of insurgencies, there were an awful lot of insurgencies out there, and most of them did not succeed. And a few of them, to be fair, were defeated using scorched earth tactics of the kind that the Russians used in Chechnya. I mean, it is possible to be successful with that kind of brute force approach. I don't mean to suggest that every time you try that, you're going to fail as the French did in Algeria, but you can only succeed under very limited conditions which very seldom apply, which is generally fighting on your own territory or adjacent to it in a place where you have a fair degree of legitimacy, a place where you can uh, apply overwhelming force, and also critically in a place where you can keep out outside media scrutiny, as the Russians have done pretty successfully in Chechnya. But unless all those conditions apply, what generally happens is, and final condition, of course, being that you have to make sure that the insurgent forces don't have uh, strongholds in adjacent territory, which you could not penetrate. So unless all of those conditions apply, uh, being as brutal as, as, as the French in Algeria or the Russians in Afghanistan or the Nazis in the Balkans or what have you, and I don't mean to suggest they were all equal levels of brutality, but they were all elements of a scorched earth tactic. Uh, so unless all of these special conditions apply, what you're generally doing is you're creating more enemies than you're eliminating. 
and I think on the whole, population-centric counterinsurgency has been more successful, but I don't mean to suggest it's been a panacea. We've seen how difficult it has been to implement, for example, in Afghanistan in the last few years. Okay, we'll open it up. Yes, sir, in the aisle. Um, so I just wanted to ask, I mean, you were saying at the beginning that conventional war isn't really that conventional when you look uh, historically, and so I was wondering, I mean, I, I think the Army has some kind of new uh, thing in place now, Army 2020, I think it's called, or something along those lines. Um, and I guess a lot of people are suggesting that really the days of conventional war, as we call it now, are sort of coming to an end. Do you think that this is going to require just a complete revamping of the way the Defense Department runs the American, I mean, military system? Yep. Well, I don't think we should stop preparing for conventional war altogether because one of the paradoxes of warfare is whatever kind of warfare you don't prepare for is the kind you're most likely to encounter. And so if we signal that we are completely unable to fight a conventional adversary, that will encourage a conventional adversary to fight us in that way. So I think we do need to have some insurance policy at the high end of warfare, especially focused on China, which has been growing its defense budget by double-digit amounts every year. But I think there is a natural uh, stratification which occurs among the, uh, among the armed forces with uh, the Army and the Marine Corps focusing more on the low-end threat and the Navy and Air Force focusing more on the conventional high-end threats like China. But I definitely do think that the Army and Marine Corps, uh, while we, they should certainly keep a few heavy armored brigades, that's not going to be the bulk of their employment in the future. There are not a lot of people who are going to fight us in tank-on-tank -tank battles. So they need to be ready uh, for more of the same of what they've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Even if we're not going to commit 100,000 troops to some Middle Eastern country anytime soon, we're still going to be in a situation where we're having to advise and assist uh, very weak indigenous allies who are fighting to put down terrorist movements that are a great threat and concern to us. So I think that has to be the bulk of the mission going forward. Uh, for that reason, I'm very sympathetic to an idea put forward by a former army officer named John Nago, who suggested the creation of an advisory corps within the Army focusing on these assistance type submissions. But that has been an impossible sell with the current Army leadership. And to be fair to them, they are kind of in a hunker down mode, feeling very embattled right now because their budget is being decimated. Uh, the entire military is really seeing a, a rapid decline in readiness because of sequestration, which is cutting uh, $500 billion from their budget over the course of the next decade on top of 500 billion, which had already been cut, but the army is really going to bear the brunt of this, of this budget cutting because of this myth, which is now popular in Washington, which is that oh, we're never going to have another ground war again because we don't like to fight those. Well, again, I go back to what I said before: we're not going to have another ground for ground war only if our enemies cooperate with us, and I suspect they will not be that cooperative. <laughs> uh, let's see, uh, in the middle here, yes. I was wondering how you see the potential outcome of sectarian guerrilla warfare, such as we have in Libya and possibly might have in Egypt. What kind of an outcome can you visualize? A, a grim outcome is, is, is the short answer. I mean, there's a reason why uh, both uh, George Washington and Robert E. Lee, who were both southern gentlemen of the, of the, of the plantation class, essentially refused to make guerrilla warfare their dominant mode of warfare. Uh, why uh, Washington did not choose a guerrilla warfare strategy, 
even in the early days when the Continental Army was very weak, why Robert E. Lee refused to follow a, a guerrilla warfare strategy after Appomattox, which would have been very easy to do, and which, in fact, the Ku Klux Klan did with some degree of success. The reason why Washington and Lee eschewed that strategy is because they understood instinctively the cost, the social cohesion of this kind of warfare, that it really shreds the social fabric in the way that we saw occur in Spain, which, by the way, the, that's where the term guerrilla comes from, literally small war, coined during the Spanish resistance against uh, Napoleon from 1808 to 1814, which left a legacy of, of unrest in the Spanish countryside, which continued for a century, right up until the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. Uh, so, you know, the longer this kind of fighting goes on, the more neighbor turns against neighbor, and the more you see this polarization occur, where people who might have lived very amicably side by side, in the case of Syria, uh, Alawites and Sunnis and Christians and Kurds and others, all of a sudden now, when there's no central state that can protect them, they gravitate towards the most extreme militias of their clan uh, or, or ethnic group to protect them. We saw that happen in, in the Balkans in the 1990s. We saw it happen in Iraq between 2003 and 2007. We're seeing it happen again, by the way, in, in Iraq. We could very well see that happen in Afghanistan after 2014 if you pull U.S forces out and the various ethnic groups there have to contend for their survival. We're seeing it now in Syria. Thank goodness we haven't seen it yet in, in the case of Egypt. Uh, in the case of Libya, it's not quite as severe, but there's not a really a functioning state there either, so you could see more of that kind of extreme violence occurring. It's a very ugly, grim scenario, and that the longer it goes on, the harder it becomes to contain, which is why I wish that uh, President Obama had listened more carefully to that aforementioned uh, Princeton graduate, David Petraeus, uh, who along with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton early on advised supporting the more moderate factions of the Free Syrian Army. We failed to do that. As a result of that, predictably, the moderates are getting squeezed from both ends, on one end from Hezbollah uh, and, their, and, and the radicals they back in the government, on the other end from Al-Qaeda and their Sunni radicals. And, and so it's leaving very little space for moderation and making it very difficult, I think, to reassemble Syria in its current form. Sorry, I wish I had better news to deliver. So you mentioned the uh, Second Intifada as a uh, case where a uh, anti-insurgency movement was put down successfully. Uh, but that occurred shortly after Hezbollah forced uh, Israel out of southern uh, Lebanon. And so I was wondering if, if you see any differences between the two anti-insurgency campaigns and whether uh, one was more, whether there are reasons that one was more effective than the other. Well, that's a very good question. And a lot of the reason is because of the willpower that the Israelis exhibit in the Second Intifada, which they did not exhibit in the Lebanon War, which stretched on between 1982 and 2000, which of course was fought on the soil of another country. Uh, and you know, fought ostensibly uh, to protect Israeli soil, but that's not, you know, throughout the 1990s, as Israelis took more and more casualties in southern Lebanon, that goal of protecting Israeli soil seemed ever more distant, whereas the casualties seemed ever more present. And so there was obviously a very potent anti-war movement which arose, the Mothers Movement and others, which led to the Israeli pullout from Lebanon in 2000 on the assumption that they could do so safely without endangering the security of the Israeli state, much is the same reason why the British were able to pull out of Malaya or the, or the French ultimately out of Algeria or 
we were able to pull out of Vietnam or Iraq or elsewhere. With the second intifada, it's a little bit of a different deal because uh, I think the, the, the majority of the Israeli populace saw this not as a threat to soldiers who were sent off to another country. It was a threat on the home front because, you know, in 2002, you had something like 100 suicide bombings, whatever the figure was. You had, I mean, you, you had hundreds and thousands of Israelis dying, you know, not in foreign countries, but, you know, in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa and, and, and other cities of Israel. And so that led to a determination by Israel that they could not simply withdraw. They had to do something effective. And what they did, I think, actually worked uh, worked pretty well, uh, which had both a defensive and an offensive component. The defensive component being the erection of this West Bank security border to make it much harder to cross between the, the, the territories and the Israel proper. The offensive part of the operation was was the the operation that Prime Minister Sharon uh, oversaw, Operation Defensive Shield, which sent the IDF back into the West Bank, which they had largely evacuated in the 1990s, to achieve dominance on the ground. And they did it very quickly with very little bloodshed, despite a lot of hype about casualties in, in Janine. Not that many people were killed because they were pretty skillful about what they did. And what they really, the key to it is, and I, I, in the course of my research for this book, I spent uh, a week in Israel interviewing a bunch of soldiers and generals who had taken part in these operations. And the key to it was really reestablishing intelligence dominance, because in this kind of conflict, you really, it's, it's a war of intelligence. I mean, that's why I call the book Invisible Armies, because you've got to figure out who the enemy is. And that's something that the Israelis had a hard time doing at the beginning, because they had pulled out of the West Bank. But once they went back in, they were able to establish their human intelligence networks, and they were also able to react much faster to the intelligence that they got. If they knew that a guy happened to be in this village at this hour, they could, you know, uh, they could mobilize a strike force from a neighboring base and arrest them very quickly. And so they were able to have a lot of, uh, uh, they, were, they were able to be very effective in this offensive phase of the operations and uprooting a lot of these terrorist networks. Now, the area where the Israelis have struggled the most is in uh, the hearts and minds uh, in trying to win over the Palestinian population, which is almost impossible, given the fact that the vast majority of Palestinians have no desire to have anything to do with the Israelis. And the Israelis have given up their experiment of trying to create new forms of government for the Palestinians that will be more amenable to Israel. They've given up on directly ruling the Palestinian territories as they tried to do between uh, the Six-Day War and the, and the Oslo peace process. And, and they were not, they were willing to send their army back into the West Bank, and they were not, however, willing to reestablish Israeli government of all these Palestinian population centers. And so, but they were lucky in a lot of ways because Arafat died, you had the, the rise of a new, more moderate leadership in the Palestinian Authority. And as the security situation started to get a little bit better for a variety of reasons, their version of the population-centric strategy is that the Israelis started pulling back some of their checkpoints, which disrupted daily life in the West Bank and made it possible for people to go about their business a little bit more easily without encountering quite so many IDF checkpoints. And that's about as far as they go in terms of trying to win hearts and minds. I think that's going to become a, that's always going to be a major issue for the Israelis and why they're never going to win a final victory under the present circumstances against groups like Hamas and Hezbollah because they have no way, no desire to impose a different form of governance on those areas. And so they can, with those groups, they can stage retaliatory raids and kill a few 
soldiers or, or leaders, but they're not going to be able to change the fundamental conditions that allow groups like Hamas and Hezbollah to regenerate themselves. Whereas in the West Bank, with their ability or willingness to put the IDF there on a, on a continuing basis, uh, they actually were able to change some conditions and prevent uh, the terrorist networks uh, from, uh, from reasserting themselves. I, I was wondering if you could speak to <clears throat> the significance of um, forms of regimes in um, counterinsurgency. I mean, you mentioned um, well, two contrasts came to mind. One, the uh, speed and ruthless effectiveness with which Iran put down the Green Revolt, um, Beijing put down Tiananmen and the other effective revolt, and um, the protracted difficulty and ultimate failure of the U.S. to put down its own insurgency during Reconstruction with the Democratic gun clubs and the Ku Klux Klan. Well, those are good examples, and I wrote about Reconstruction in my book, which I think was a, one of the most successful terrorist campaigns of all time, which in, partially annulled the verdict of the Civil War, uh, largely because, it, again, it comes down to a question of will. Just as the Israelis didn't have the will to pacify Lebanon, so most of the Union population did not have the will to pacify the South. And the, the, the the neo-Confederate forces, the KKK and others, did a very effective job of what we would now call information operations, selling this narrative that they were the actual victims, uh, even as they were terrorizing African Americans, denying them their rights. They were spreading this mythology about how the, 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 the South was raped by the carpetbaggers and, uh, and, and taken advantage of this narrative, which ultimately culminated in Gone with the Wind, one of one of the great works of political propaganda of all time. Um, so for a variety of reasons, uh, they were, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the defenders of the southern plantation class were very successful in, in, the, in the kind of terrorist campaign that they waged. But I would, I would be hesitant to draw too many uh, lessons here to suggest that democracies are ineffective against these kinds of movements. and and dictatorships are inevitably more effective. I think generally, I mean, it goes both ways because you know you can certainly point to the success, the lack of success that the Green Movement has had in, in Iran, and obviously they were very brutally put down in, in much the same way as the democracy demonstrators were put down at Tiananmen Square. But on the other hand, I mean, look at around the, the, the Arab world today in places like Cairo, where at least temporarily, the people did have success in toppling existing regimes. I would say, if, if we can generalize at all, and it's, it's very hard to generalize, I would say that uh, all countries are better at fighting insurgencies on their native ground than they are abroad. In general, I would say that democracies are more vulnerable to terrorism than dictatorships. There's really no history of terrorism in states like Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany or North Korea today because the states exert such a complete control of society, it's impossible for these terrorist groups to operate. But on the other hand, by and large, democracies have been much better at avoiding large-scale insurgencies. It's unthinkable to have a movement like the FARC taking control of 20% of the American countryside. You don't worry about, I mean, you worried about in the 1960s and 70s about groups like the Bader meinhof Gang or the Red Army Brigades running around Europe, and nobody ever imagined that a significant chunk of German or Italian territory was going to be taken over by terrorists. It's inconceivable because 
those states like ours operate with the consent of the government. And what the number one factor which makes a, an insurgency successful is an illegitimate regime. That is the number one determinant of success or failure of an insurgency. To what extent is the regime illegitimate? If it is, the insurgency will, will go somewhere. If the regime is seen as legitimate, as, as legitimate, the odds of a major insurgency are very small. The most you'll see will be, you know, if, uh, some radical bands like the 9-11 plotters or the Weather Underground, really people who are at the margins of society and number in the dozens at most, who are, of course, they're able to, to stage acts of violence as lone individuals have been, like the brothers who blew up the Boston Marathon and so forth, but you're not gonna see a large scale uprising. Uh, but there's no question that for democracy, it's much harder to fight a large scale insurgency abroad because uh, as we've discovered in places like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, uh, as the Soviets discovered in Afghanistan also, uh, many other examples, Algeria, Malaya, and, and others, it's much harder to maintain that will to fight as the Israelis also discovered in Lebanon. So it's a complicated story. I would, I would just caution against drawing too many easy examples and suggest that either dictatorships or democracies are necessarily superior in this kind of conflict. In the front here. Thank you. <clears throat> would you explain how our national interest was advanced by uh, our invasion, declaration of war, and uh, acts of war against uh, the Libyan regime of Muammar Gaddafi? All right, that was a surprise ending. I was expecting that a question to be about Iraq, but okay. Uh, Libya. Um, well, I think it remains, I would actually give you the same answer about Libya that I would give you if you'd asked about Iraq, uh, which is it remains to be seen whether our national interest has been advanced or not. I think a lot of it really depends on the long-term outcome. I mean, if Libya actually manages to get its act together and becomes a pro-Western democratic state that happily exports oil to the world and doesn't fund uh, terrorism in the way that Gaddafi did for a lot of his time in power, then I think it's a win. If, however, as as seems quite possible and even probable at this moment, Libya remains this ungovernable mess with uh, militias running around uh, and providing easy operating opportunities for Al-Qaeda and their ilk, and it's not gonna turn out to be a long-term win, and it won't be necessarily in our interest to have deposed Gaddafi. You know, as with most of these things, uh, what really matters is follow-through, and that's where we're not very good, because we are very good at regime change, it's, it's not that hard when you have pretty unpopular regimes like Saddam Hussein or the Taliban or Muammar Gaddafi. It's not that hard to get rid of them because most people are happy to get rid of them. The problem is it takes a lot of heavy lifting for decades to come to establish viable functioning alternatives. We didn't do it in, we, we took our eye off that ball in Iraq, we took our eye off that ball in Afghanistan, and amazingly enough, even after candidate Obama had denounced, I think rightly, a lot of the Bush failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, he repeated some of those same mistakes in Libya. And we never really had much of a program of nation building or security assistance to help this nascent pro-American government actually gain control of its territory. And of course, we paid a heavy price for that on uh, September 11th of last year when our ambassador and several other Americans were killed in Benghazi because of the chaos which continues to prevail in that country. Uh, 
I wonder if you could touch on the legal implications of what you've been saying. Um, in conventional warfare, an individual is captured, will obviously be treated as a prisoner of war. What would be the case uh, with insurgents, guerrillas, or terrorists, however you define them? It's a, it's a problem in Washington right now. It is a problem because there's not a good legal answer. Uh, I mean, the, the best legal answer, the best attempt at a legal answer uh, came from a gentleman uh, who worked at a rival institution, Columbia University. I'm thinking of Francis Lieber, who was a German-American law professor in the 19th century, actually a fascinating guy who, had, who used to live in South Carolina and had one son fighting for the Confederacy and one for the Union, but he was an ardent pro-Union man, and he uh, composed something that came to be known as the Lieber Code, uh, which was promulgated by the Union armies as General Orders Number 1 in 1863, which was an attempt to address the very question uh, that, that you ask. And what Lieber was trying to do, building on, on generations of, of laws of war, was to draw a distinction between lawful and unlawful combatants. And lawful combatants are those who display their arms openly, who have, wear uniforms, who have a rank structure, basically who act in the way that you expect conventional armies to act. Unlawful combatants are everybody else who basically act in the way that you expect guerrillas and terrorists to act. And Lieber tried to lay out a social contract saying that those who were lawful combatants would be accorded the full honors of lawful prisoners of war. They would, you know, all of the, they would be essentially be treated the way that, you know, uh, William Holden and other prisoners of war were treated in, 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 in films about Germ American POWs in, in, in German prisoner of war camps. They would get their Red Cross packages and all that other good stuff. Uh, on the other hand, the guerrillas, the unlawful combatants, the bushwhackers, as they were known in the Civil War, uh, could be treated as highway bandits and hung from the nearest maple tree uh, as, as unlawful combatants. Now, that was the theory of, and I, in theory, it's a very neat delineation. In practice, it's never actually worked that way because even in the Union, uh, in, in the case of the Union Army in the Civil War, sometimes they, they hung captured bushwhackers, other times they imprisoned them. The treatment varied all over the place as it has throughout pretty much every conflict ever since, and there's really been no, there's no been, there, there's not been a systematic attempt to work it out, which is why we're in this uh, kind of limbo right now where we have, uh, uh, we have like 100 and, I don't know what, 20, 150, 140 detainees, some, some number like that, held at Guantanamo as unlawful combatants. But while President Obama has not been able to close the Gitmo facility, he doesn't want to send anybody else there. So anybody else we capture these days tends to wind up in federal district court for the Southern District of, of, uh, of New York, or otherwise, and the really easy solution, we just vaporize them with a missile. Uh, so you don't have to worry about these things. And in fact, I think our, our muddle-headedness and our inability to figure out how to handle these detainees actually makes the vaporization option much more attractive. So we're much more likely to send a drone than to try to capture somebody when we don't know what to do with them. And it's, this has been a huge issue, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we've rolled up thousands of insurgents, but we have very limited ability to hold them. And we've been, you know, we turned them over to the Iraqis, now we're turning them over to the Afghans, and they're releasing a lot of them. So it, it creates a potentially dangerous situation. I think the answer is we need a, you know, an update, basically, of, of the international law with a new conference on the lines of the, of the Hague Conventions, which basically internationalized the Libra Code a century ago. I think we need a similar convention to internationalize an accepted uh, 
law to govern detainees who are engaged in terrorism or guerrilla warfare, but I think it's very hard to do because, you know, as, as the common adage has it, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so, you know, countries, uh, even, you know, even in our case, I mean, we, we denounce terrorism, but you can argue that in certain instances we support terror, we have supported terrorism, like by the Afghan Mujahideen. I mean, the Soviets certainly thought they were victims of terrorism, so it's hard to, uh, it's hard to reach agreement on common rules of the road, but I think it would be nice if we could. I'm just curious, how did you, as a Berkeley grad, get so much knowledge about the military, or conversely, how did you, with so much knowledge about the military, wind up at Berkeley? Which, which came first? It was Princeton rejected me, that's what happened. I never actually applied to Princeton, sorry, I don't want to, I don't, I don't mean to dash your hopes. Um, that's a good question. Um, I guess I'm just a weirdo, I, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I tend to, I guess, react against any environment that I'm in. So if I had actually spent the last 20 years in the military, I would probably emerge as this raving peacenik. Uh, but uh, as it happens, I've always had an interest in, in military matters, and especially in military history. And uh, Berkeley did not, uh, did not convince me otherwise. In fact, by the way, Berkeley has a very active ROTC program, which goes back many years and which was never eliminated because it's a state school. Uh, but uh, again, I've always been interested in military history and I really wanted to study military history in grad school. It's very hard to do because there are very few programs in this country that actually offer a program in military history. I wound up at another uh, rival institution in New Haven and, and spent a little time at Yale and then went off into the work world, went into journalism. And then uh, in 2002, I published a, a little book called The Savage Wars of Peace, Small Wars and the Rise of American Power, which I'd really written uh, while I was moonlighting for my day job at, at the Wall Street Journal. And as a result of that, I wound up being hired by the Council on Foreign Relations. And so I've had the opportunity over the course of the last decade plus to really enhance my knowledge of, of the military. I've had a chance to work very closely with our military fellows and residents, these colonels and captains who spend a year working with us, the most illustrious of whom was, was Stan McChrystal. Uh, and I've had an opportunity to travel to Iraq and Afghanistan and see a little bit of what was going on there firsthand, which has given me, I think, a, uh, an interesting perspective on these historical uh, battles that I'm writing about because, of course, the perspective that historians by definition have is looking at things retrospectively, knowing how it worked out, and there's a tendency to write the story knowing, knowing the ending. And, you know, seeing what was happening in, in Iraq and Afghanistan being in Iraq from 2003 up until fairly recently. And I remember the dark days of 2006, 2007, when all really seemed lost. That really makes me understand in a, in a very visceral way uh, how contingency unfolds in history and how things can go in very different directions and how I think uh, uh, important individuals can impose their will on a situation in a way that I think that, that uh, Generals Petraeus and Odierno did in Iraq in 2007. So I think it's, it's given me you know, a better appreciation for, for the history that I'm chronicling. And it really led to the writing of this book in the first place because I really wanted to understand the background of what I was seeing in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and to figure out how usual or unusual it was, what was different, what was the same. And that was what sent me off on this six-year historical odyssey to write this book. 
uh, which I hope will not lead to the to the to to having my uh, Berkeley degree revoked. Yeah. <laughs> the very back. You've cited how legitimate democracies uh, generally endure attacks upon their homeland. Um, you've also cited the sequestration cuts in our homeland. Um, what are we strategically prepared to deal with, with more aggressive, invisible army attacks in the United States? I'm concerned that we're not going to be well prepared in the future. I think at the moment what we're doing is we're cutting back the conventional forces. We're not cutting back the special operations forces so much. And I think right now we have excessive faith in the power of the commandos to protect us. And in part, this is being fed by this mystique, largely driven by the SEALs, because you can't go to the Cineplex anymore without seeing a movie about how awesome the SEAL Team 6 is in particular, whether it was Zero Dark Thirty or, or Captain Phillips, great movies, and I enjoyed them, and I think they accurately depict the incredible tactical prowess that the SEALs have, as well as Delta Force and many of these other operators. Truly the best special operations forces in the world and what they do is incredible, and we should really remember their courage and bravery today because you know, a lot of them are, are still not home. A lot of them are downrange operating right now. They're still out there going on very dangerous missions every single night. Uh, and paying a high pr price for it, I might add, a lot of them are not coming back. But the, the skill and, and, uh, and, 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 and heroism they've d displayed is truly un unparalleled. Having said all that, they would be the first to tell you if you talk to them, there's a limit to what they can do. And what they primarily do is what's known as leadership targeting. They're very, very good at taking out individuals from the battlefield if you identify what they call an HVT, a high value target and you put them on something called the JPEL list, which is essentially the wanted, dead, or alive list maintained by uh, the Special Operations Forces and the intelligence community, sooner or later, they will take him down. They took down Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, they took down Saddam Hussein, they took down Osama bin Laden. If you designate somebody for killing or capturing, sooner or later, they will get their man. The problem is, what happens afterwards? And what we've seen is that many of our enemies are very resilient. Al-Qaeda in Iraq actually grew stronger after Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was eliminated by a couple of F-16 bombs in June of 2006. The Pakistani Taliban just had their second leader in the last few years killed in a drone strike. I can guarantee you they're not going away. Hezbollah and Hamas have lost uh, senior leaders in the past to the Israeli version of these leadership raids. They're stronger than ever. So there's a limit to what these special operations forces and the men and women, the CIA, who also do a tremendous job, and the rest of the intelligence community. There's a limit to what they're able to accomplish. And they're very, very good at what they do, but it's, you know, in, in military jargon, it's only one line of operations. And you need many, many other lines of operations in a comprehensive counterinsurgency campaign of the kind that we waged, for example, in Iraq starting in 2007. My concern is that we're placing excessive reliance on this one line of operations. and we're ignoring the need for other lines of operations because at the end of the day, eliminating senior leaders of groups like Al-Qaeda uh, is like mowing the lawn. It may be necessary, but it's not going to achieve a lasting effect unless you can actually control the territory on which they operate. The question is who controls the territory in places like Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Libya, and all these other states? It's certainly not our allies. Uh, these groups have freedom to regenerate themselves after these 
these tactically daring and successful raids that we launch. So we need to have, I think, more of a comprehensive nation building strategy to go along with our leadership targeting strategy so that we can build up indigenous security forces that have some degree of effectiveness and legitimacy that can actually control these territories to prevent these terrorist groups from regenerating. But I don't see any sign of that strategy. And it's, you know, it's not just the fact that we're cutting back the military, it's also the fact that AID and other uh, civilian agencies of the U.S. government also don't have much in the way of resources. They're also getting cut back. So, you know, we're kind of expecting that these supermen and, and, and maybe if before long a few superwomen in, in the Special Operations Command are going to be able to carry the whole burden of, of protecting our security. And again, if you talk to them, they'll be the first to tell you, don't have exaggerated expectations for what they can do. Well, we've taken it to 6 o'clock, uh, closing time. Um, before we thank Mr. Boot, uh, Chanel, are we here on Thursday? One thirty-eight uh, here in Lewis Library on Thursday, 4.30. We have uh, Jean Yarbrough from Bowdoin College who has a new uh, uh, major work on Teddy Roosevelt, Rise of Progressivism, and the progressive critique of the thought of the founders. So I hope you can come out uh, for Jean's talk. And now, uh, we're so glad to get you here this year, Max, uh, and thank you for a great <laughs> Thank you.